Well, hey, everybody, I, I, need a, I feel like I should greet those of you in your campers because we're in a season now that, that we added locations, your camper, and, and maybe if you want to, if you want to make it feel good about maybe skipping out on church and going camping, go invite the people camping next to you, but don't sneak up on them, just maybe from afar, say, hey, you want to go to church. But uh, welcome wherever, wherever you are tuning in from. Hello, East. I was with you last week. It was awesome. And uh, I, I want to go after something because of where we've been as a church. So if you're brand new, you're like, well, where you been? I don't know where you've been. We've been talking about uh, what we believe, uh, what Christians believe more specifically, what Christians actually in their hearts and their minds, what we believe. However, there's a problem with that. If you spend the rest of your life only talking about what you believe, uh, well, it breaks down. Uh, eventually, there has to be a stage that you, you behave out what you believe. In other words, and the reason we're doing this series, uh, some assembly is required. If you've ever put together a bookshelf, at first you look at a bookshelf, you're like, I'd like that bookshelf. Maybe you looked at it online, saw it in a store, whatever. You're like, I want to get that. Then you get it and realize the instructions are meant to make you have a fight with whoever helps you put it together. That's what they're designed for. And some of you are like, you use the instructions? See, there's the problem. Uh, so what I'm going to tell you is that I think a lot of us uh, say we believe something, and we do. It's legit. I'm not calling you a liar. I'm not calling me a liar. But maybe you're like me in some way where you have said, I believe X, whatever it is. But then you had a day where your behavior did not indicate that you actually believe that. The, the, the situations you faced challenged you enough that what you said you believe about life, what you like about life, well, it's one of those days you might say, I regret that day, and I, that was not my best day. No. Some of you are super nice. Now, maybe all of you are super nice, but uh, many of us will say, well, everyone has a bad day. It's no big deal. Uh, we're all imperfect. Uh, try again. And, and, and that's very nice and cordial of you to offer that to me. Thank you. Uh, but I think there's a danger in always excusing our behavior. I think it's fine. Like, yeah, sure, you messed up. But, but this does not apply in all areas of life. That's going to give you some examples. Uh, let's say that uh, my son, uh, he's about well, technically, I guess he now is a senior. What if I went to my son the day after graduation, or maybe the day of, and said, hey, man, I'm sorry I missed your graduation. Um, I'm imperfect. Some of you, that, you're fuming at the idea that I would do such a thing. Or what if I went to my wife and said, hey, I know yesterday was our anniversary, and I did nothing and, and said nothing, but I'm imperfect. So, in other words, deal with it. After a while, uh, as, a, as a married man and as a dad, I'm going to tell you, that doesn't work long term. So when you and I talk about beliefs, it's good, but we've got to be careful about bringing up excuses. Excuses have a tendency to stick around far too long, where we say, this is why I did that, or this is why I didn't do that. And many of us right now are living, and I'm, I'm again, uh, let me look up. I'm not looking at anyone in particular. Uh, many of us are living based on excuses, and we're not getting 
forward. So basically, to give you a visual, we've got the cabinet in the box and we keep having reasons that we're not assembling it. We say we believe it's good. We think it's good. We even know how to use it and, and we're excited about it. We might even tell someone, I got a great deal. Go buy this. Yet we're not assembling it. We've got tons of excuses. There's a, a woman that I learned about in school, uh, Florence Nightingale. Uh, the, the lady uh, with the lamp is her a uh, bit of a nickname for her. I'll give you some stats, on, or not stats, details. Uh, she felt called by God, listen, this is pretty cool, to reduce human suffering. Now, that's a pretty daunting thing to go about doing with your life. What are you doing today? I'm going to really uh, put a dent in human suffering. Most of us would be like, uh, good luck. But, but she was known as, especially during time of war, that she would, like, with a lamp, uh, night and day, nonstop, would go take care of people. Even after that, uh, she helped establish the first scientifically-based nursing school, according to the Internet. Sorry if that's incorrect, but that's what the Internet told me. Uh, instrumental in, in training uh, nurses and midwives. And she was asked one time, because she began to kind of rack up all of this, like, wow, you're incredible. You're doing so much. This is a big deal well, you and I, I'm talking about her. And, and she was asked, like, how? How are you connecting this idea that you want to, and you feel called by God to, to like, affect human suffering? How? How are you doing this? And she gave an answer, and that's why I want you to see this. I attribute my success to this. I never gave or took an excuse. And as I'm reading about her, that struck me because <clears throat> I love to give excuses about my own behavior. Now, I don't love to give excuses about your behavior. Do you find that fascinating? Uh, but my behavior, why I did or didn't do dot, 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 it's easy to excuse away to the point that you get frustrated with. But let me show you something uh, in the Bible that you probably resonate. I don't really understand myself. Amen. Why? For what I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. In other words, I believe this. This, I believe this. But did you see my day? And it's frustrating. And he's saying that for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. So let's, let's do a series. Let's spend four weeks talking about something very in particular. What gets in the way of a close relationship with God. Because what we established, and, and as a church talking about what we believe, in essence, we talked about how we think God is amazing and that we want a relationship with God. And many of us would say, oh, that's actually what I want. Uh, just by your attendance or tuning in, you're indicating in some fashion that you're interested in God, in love with God, connected to God, desiring some sort of relationship with him. But all of us would say, yeah, but there's times that that does not show itself. What gets in the way? Well, I'm going to give you four different answers. Not different ones, ones that could stack on top of each other and help. But to give you the first one, um, I need to read you a story. It's great philosophy. So prepare yourselves. Get comfortable wherever you are. This is called the ugly duckling. Here we go. The ugly duckling. It belongs to, I haven't written in that yet. Hold on. One sunny summer morning, a mother duck sat at her nest by a lake. She was waiting for her eggs to hatch. 
First one egg cracked open. Then another one. Peep, peep. You're welcome. Peep, peep, the duckling said. Quack, quack, mother duck said. The biggest egg did not open, though. So mother duck sat back on the nest and waited. The next day, the big egg cracked open. A large gray baby bird came out. What an ugly duckling, the other duckling said. Jerks. The barnyard animals gathered around the new family. When the other ducks saw the ugly duckling, they said, we don't want him here. So the ugly duckling ran away. He, he ran until he found a little pond, and there he hid. These are sad. The next morning, the ugly duckling met two geese. Come fly with us, they said. But he hid in the reeds. Then he heard dogs barking, big hunting dogs splashed right by him. The little duckling stayed very still. When the dogs were gone, he ran into the forest. He saw a little house in the middle of the forest and went right inside. Do you lay eggs? asked the woman that was sitting in there. Can you purr like me? asked the cat. The duckling shook his head. Good for nothing, said the hen. Well, I see that I must leave, sighed the duckling, and he walked out. When the ugly duckling found a little pond to swim in, he stayed the whole summer. He grew feathers. He could even fly a little. One evening, he saw a flock of beautiful white birds fly past. Wait for me, he cried. He flapped his wings and tried to join them, but the birds flew away. Well, now it was very cold. The winter snow came and the pond began to freeze. One morning, a farmer saw the little duckling stuck in the ice. He took the duckling home, set him near the stove to warm up. Before he could warm up, though, the farmer's children found him. And they chased him around and around, and he flew out the window to escape him. The warm days of spring then came around. The ugly duckling could fly now. He flew up over the trees. He flew over the fields. When he was tired, he rested in a stream. There he saw the beautiful white birds again. They were gliding toward him. When the swans saw the duckling, they greeted him kindly. You have such bright white feathers. Join us. The ugly duckling looked into the stream. He saw his reflection. He had become a beautiful young swan. His feathers were white. His neck was long and graceful. The farmer's children came to the stream. They saw the swan with his new family. Look, they cried. He's the most beautiful swan of all. What a fun book to read to our kids, right? Here's the deal with this. Many of us right now, we feel like the ugly duckling part, right? If you find this interesting, I hope you do, that the way the book's written, uh, it's, it's not about an ugly duck. We, we're, I, don't, I don't mean to be a spoiler if you didn't catch that. That Some of you are like, oh, no, yeah, no he, he didn't evolve. Uh, he, he was given a title at the very beginning of his life and believed it. 
The reason I read you that book is I think many of us have done the very same thing. And the title that you've locked onto uh, has become an identity for you. It happens all the time. Titles, they, they become identities for us. And, and, and the simple kid's book, uh, profound as you should see it, uh, oozes a ton of scripture. It oozes a ton of like, wait a minute, uh, maybe, maybe I've been believing something about myself that's getting in the way of me and God. And what I will tell you from right off the bat that, that, that you and I, if you want a relationship with God and you want it to thrive, like get, getting out of uh, just religion, you actually want to actually have this working, strong relationship with God. You want it to be so rock solid that nothing actually destroys it, that you don't get deterred. One of the things that you've got to go after is uh, what kind of identity you've locked onto. Now, I'm going to give you a list, okay? Here's a list. Um, observations. Here's what I see, and it's non-exhaustive. There's more for those of you like, I would add, okay, you can add things. That's fine. But here's what I see. I think um, some of us are finding our title and, and, and our identity in our appearance. What I look like tells me who I am. If you allow me to go there without misinterpreting what I'm saying, sometimes that's beauty, but sometimes that's your skin color. And I think some of us are are actually choosing that your identity is what you look like. And God would say it's deeper and better than that. Uh, relationship. Who is with me tells me who I am. Uh, if you're dating, this is a major, major temptation. Uh, if you're not dating, this is a major, major temptation. Uh, if you're breathing, this is a major, major temptation. Uh, that the people in your life or the people that aren't in your life Often we allow them to tell us and make us feel who we are and we own that and we live that out. Uh, resources, what I own tells me who I am. Uh, whether it's a bank account or maybe it is an actual thing that you own, what you drive, where you live, all, where you're from, all that kinds of stuff. The things that you've got that you, you are aware of, uh, sometimes we'll say that's who I am. If I have that, this is how I feel, which means who I am. Uh, Desire, what I want, tells me who I am. Uh, there's a whole sermon series here. <laughs> uh, we live in a culture now that would say uh, your sexuality tells you who you are, gives you your identity. No, it doesn't. But our culture will tell you, yes, it does. Define yourself based on what you want, what you feel, what you crave, what you desire. If you do that, you're going to struggle with a relationship with God because that's not what your identity was even built on. Achievement, this is welcome to my temptation. Uh, what I do tells me who I am. I'm a competitive person. I love to beat you, okay? That's just like, that's fun. Whatever game we play, I want to win. I love to achieve. And sometimes I love to achieve because it makes me feel good about myself. I know it's not the whole list. But I wonder where you are with your identity. Because here, what gets in the way of a close relationship with God? A mistaken identity. I think if you don't know who you really are, you're going to struggle having this authentic, non-religious, 
non-ritualistic relationship with God because you're going to let all these other factors, even if it's not even on the list, tell you, who, here's who you are. Here's what's most important in your life. Here's what you should demand. And be a victim. Be this. Be that. And there's lots of stories about mistaken identities. Uh, I want to show you one. One involves Jesus where he's been walking all morning long. The way the Bible tells it is, like from early in the morning till about noon, and he arrives at a well exhausted and thirsty and hungry. Uh, I would have been the very same thing. So he shows up to this well. The disciples go into town, according to the Bible, to get food, leaving Jesus alone at this well, thirsty and hungry. And that's where we pick up the story. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and and Jesus said to her, "Uh, please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because the disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. Watch what she does. The woman was surprised. Now, can we? why would she be surprised? She's at a well, and a guy asked for water. I mean, if he had asked for a Big Mac, whole other surprise issue. Whole another, right? They're at a well. It would be natural for anyone to walk up to you and say, do you have some water? Would you help me get some what's down there? That's logical. Why would she be surprised? Well, here, I mean, she she reveals it. The woman was surprised. For Jews, it's a term of identity. Refuse to have anything to do with Samaritans. Again, identity. You notice what she's doing. It's what you and I do right now. It's what is messed up and jacked up in our culture right now. We are taking on titles, taking on positions, and we are now saying, why would you do this? You believe that, and you think that. Why would you treat me like a human being? I love how the Bible is so good. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? I, I, we don't have time to go through all the culture, but you just need to do, know that Jews hated Samaritans. Culturally, they just hated them. Like, ugly hate. Like, there's historical uh, documentation that says Jews were taught that if you saw a Samaritan woman giving birth on the side of the road, that you were not to help her because you would help bring another Samaritan into this world. They hated them, and they identified that way. I think you and I get stuck here, where whatever our culture teaches you and I about identity, we lock onto it, and then we take a stance. And we wonder why our relationship with God isn't thriving. What's cool about Jesus, I mean, she brings up identity. Like, she brings up, hey, uh, so you're this, and I'm this. We can't really talk. And how Jesus answers. Jesus replied, If you only knew the gift God has for you. Wait, 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 wait. Jesus, she brought up with you identities. You, why aren't, did you miss the the Jew and the Samaritan thing? He totally disregards it. He's good. He's Jesus. Uh, Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me. And I would give you living water. Living water. I mean, he did ask for water. 
because he was physically thirsty, but then now he's going deeper and deeper on this. And look at verse 13. Jesus replied, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. You should find this fascinating that a woman starts talking to Jesus using identity terms. And he goes, oh, you want to talk about identity? All right. And he brings up eternity. Here's a lesson. Take a note somehow. The subject of identity is connected to eternity. Let me help you. Let me remind you. The subject of identity is not connected to your sexuality. It's not connected to your gender. It's not connected to... Uh, how much you make, what you own, who likes you, who's in your life, who's not, what you've achieved. It, it, Jesus says, you want to talk identity? Cool. Let's talk eternity. Because that is how you begin to understand who you are. So using the ugly duckling, um, the story tells you about a person's continual going like, why am I here? This, I say a person. I'm talking about this little swan duck. Like he's a, never mind. Anyways, he, he's going through life going, okay, they're telling me this or they're rejecting me this. And you begin to craft an understanding of who you are based on your experiences. And you begin to craft this. And so I think it's important to be like, well, we know a lot about Jesus and what he did and what he experienced and, and all. So what was Jesus about? Like what, was, like, what was his role? And he tells this actually in this, near the same place of what we find in the story. He came into the very world, this very world, uh, he created, but the world didn't recognize him. Fascinating. I think it's because they had a different idea of what he would be like. He came to his own people and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him, and accepted him. He gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. This is identity language. Notice what it, the Bible describes. You want to know why Jesus is showing up? Do you know one of the main reasons, not all the reasons, but one of the main reasons he showed up was to help you and I actually know what your true identity can and should be. It wasn't just like, I'm drafting this new religion. It's going to be awesome. You're going to love it all. So here's what he did when he showed up. Here, he created a way for you to become his child. And that is identity language. Adoption is identity language. Now, you need to know who he was talking to because it's very fascinating. So at the time of Jesus, the Romans were, well, I probably think they would tell us everywhere, like everywhere. They were ruling everything that they possibly could and totally in charge. But in Roman culture, Jesus would have been talking to people who understood Roman culture because Roman culture was, was like bleeding into all the other cultures. Roman culture had a culture about abandonment and adoption that you should know about so that you understand why Jesus is using language like, uh, you can be my child. Roman uh, culture happened this way. Here's what would happen. Um, if you're a woman uh, and, and you gave birth, there would be eventual this ceremony in your own home where the father would be in front of you and you would take that baby that you gave birth to and you would lay that baby at the feet of the father. The role then for the father was this. The father would look at the baby and decide, listen, if he wanted the baby. 
Oftentimes, the father would look at the baby and one, if it's a girl, now the baby's at risk. Because oftentimes, the father would want a son in order to pass the name on to the family. So no joke, I picture this, this is how it would work. The father would look, if, if the father didn't like the way the baby looked, if the father didn't like anything of the baby, here's what the father would do. The father would, wouldn't say anything, because uh, I have a whole commentary on how cowardly that is, but anyways, uh, would, would not look, at, he, he, would, he would just turn his back. And that would mean that the mother would then pick the baby up and try to find something to do with the baby. Now, they did not have a culture uh, that was okay with killing the baby. That's good. But what they would do is they would oftentimes, because they're going to kill the baby, they would they believe that the gods, the gods would take care of this. So they would often take the baby and set the baby outside and let the gods deal with the baby. Sometimes they would take uh, the baby to the marketplace where, where tons of people would be passing by, passing by, passing by. Maybe someone would take the baby if a lot of people saw the baby. There was often, in Roman culture, a garbage dump outside of the city. Sometimes they would take the baby to the garbage dump. There was a culture of abandonment. If you were a, a baby that was abandoned, left, let's say, in a marketplace, oftentimes uh, someone would come take you and make you their slave. Now you're thinking, I don't know if that's good. Let me give you just understanding about this. In Roman culture, becoming a slave actually was considered lucky because it gave you some identity. Uh, you, rather than having like nobody, nobody, you had someone who owned you who at least called you a slave. Here's why I bring this up. Many of us have become okay with a lesser identity because it's all you got. We've stayed in the same culture where we've been like, well, this has been my experience, so you know, I'm cool with this. You know, I'm not perfect. I'm not, so I, I don't really get that kind of awesome relationship with God. I'm going to be kind of just, just his slave for the rest of life. And he's like, you can be my child. Like, I want to adopt you. I want you in my life. I want, I want to give you an inheritance of eternity. And many of us like, don't have that relationship with God because we're treating him like he's our slave master. Fascinating how culture just keeps cycling. Let me take you back to Scripture. Uh, but to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. Huh. So how do you know who you are? I mean... Do you want your friends or culture or feelings, emotions, experiences? Do you want the good or just the bad to define who you are and say, this is who you are? Here, let me give you guidance according to Scripture. Let's get very practical. Let's start assembling this. Uh, your creator has the best answer for who you are. The best answer, the best uh, instructions <laughs> uh, come from your very creator. And your creator says over and over and over, I want you to be my child. I want you to be my child. I love you. The Bible tells us that God sent his one and only son to come for us, to save us. 
And so if you have a wrestling with your own identity and you're like, it feels like this or that, let your creator begin to speak it to you. Uh, let's go, more scripture. But, uh, but the time is coming, indeed, it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. See, the woman brings up, talking to Jesus, I mean, I got lots of questions, she did too, uh, and began to talk and, and like, okay, let's talk about worship. And so she brings up worship. So why do you worship this way? Because I worship this way. And, and what's the big deal? And he begins to say, all right, let's talk worship. And he says, uh, you, you want to actually walk this out? Worship the Father in spirit and truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. The, fa- the Bible just told you what God is looking for. It's not, it's not difficult. The Bible just, it just said, uh, you want to know what God wants? Okay. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And if you're like, how do I worship him in, in spirit? Do I like flow my arms a bunch? How, I think it's a logical question. So here, uh, worship in spirit and truth. It's, it's basic, but, 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 but good. Um, approach God out of relationship, out of your spirit. Uh, don't, don't always go to him thinking it's, it's a ritual. See, at the time, uh, even still today, people would only approach God at, through the system, the structure. So it's like, I do this. I stand up, I sit down, I kneel, I twist, I turn, I do whatever. And, and he's, he's like, no, bring you for real. Don't just go through the motions. If you want to have a closer relationship with God, you've got to approach him with spirit and truth and learn what God says, not what you feel, not just about what you feel. Basic ways to approach God with who you really are, with genuine authenticity, but also going, God, what's your truth, not what's mine? What's your truth? And you'll find yourself growing in this relationship with God. And as you grow in this relationship with God, your identity will get solidified. So uh, there's a story, a sports story. I apologize. I always preemptively say it's going to be a sports story. Uh, just don't worry about it. Uh, in 2016, this is a World Series. For those of you who don't follow sports, the World Series is like the ultimate series for professional baseball. If you don't know what professional baseball is, you're going to have to Google that. But there's, like, this is the ultimate. And in two, 2016, the Chicago Cubs were in the World Series. Now, that's a big deal. It had been, I believe, 108 years since they had won the World Series. So they got to this game, and they were up 6-3. to three. And uh, when you're winning in baseball, 6-3, to three, that's good. So they bring in their relief pitcher, and the relief pitcher is, is basically said, you got two outs, get two outs, we're champions, this is awesome. And he's like an incredible relief pitcher. The relief pitcher comes in and gives up three runs. If you aren't good at math, we've gone from six to three to six to six. Also, if you don't know about the Chicago Cubs, there was something considered to be the curse. When you go 108 years without something, you begin to wonder, I think God's cursed me, right? So uh, they get to be rattled, and in fact, um, they begin to actually lose heart. The fans, you can even feel it. You should go back and watch highlights of this. They begin to be like, wait a minute, we are, we're the Chicago Cubs, the cursed team, the losers. Ah, oh, it's happening. It's 6-6, six six, we're going to lose. Well, then rain starts happening. You can't really play baseball in rain, you're not supposed to. So they start a rain delay. They bring out the tarp cover up the field. All the teams go into the dugouts with the coaches, and they sit and wait the rain out. 
But what do you do when you're waiting? You often begin to believe lies about yourself. The way this goes is the team began to lose its steam. The Cubs and going, we're going to lose this. We're losers. We're going to lose this. Then a guy named uh, Jason Hayward does a speech. And here's his speech. Remember who you are. And he began to tell him, you are in the playoffs. We have won enough games to get ourselves here. We are really good. We are professional baseball players. It's kind of like looking in the mirror going, you can do it. They came out and they won. They won the World Series. I don't like the Cubs, but I love the story. (laughs) Remember who you are. Whatever you're going through right now, I'd love to give you the same wisdom. Remember who you are. And don't always believe the titles that people give you. If you need help with this, I wanted to land here. Uh, this is the message translation of Romans 9.25. I'll call nobodies and make them somebodies. I'll call the unloved and make them beloved. In the place where they yelled out, you're nobody, they're calling you God's living children. So let me give you like nuts and bolts, final instructions how to complete this bookshelf. You need to go to your home, your camper, your wherever, and you need to remind yourself somehow who you are according to your creator. And the Bible oozes these promises and these definitions of you. So write them on your mirrors. Get them tattooed if you're okay with tattoos. Uh, learn a memory verse, go to your friends and say, hey, I need you to text me every day for the next month and remind me who my creator says I am because I struggle remembering. It's your job to complete this assembly. It's not to earn the favor of God, but to remind yourself of how you actually have the favor of God. He loves you. He wants you to be his child. And it is your job to remind yourself of that over and over and over again. Otherwise, someone is going to get your book and screw your life up. Don't let that happen. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we love you. What a privilege to have truth in your Bible telling us about ourselves because it's easy to forget. God, would you remind each one of us as we want to grow closer to you and live in a relationship with you, God, would you remind us all week, all month, all year, for the rest of our lives, uh, how much you love us and uh, help us to be diligent in pursuing that truth. We love you, God. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.